I remember being a senior in college and everyone had to go around the room and share where they wanted to be in 10 years and listening to my classmates like, I want to be married and have kids and whatever. And I just said, I just want to work with prostitutes. (laughs) (laughs) And it was this super awkward moment. And looking back, I'm like, why did I say that? I don't know if it's just like from God or what, but I just felt that these women had stories, that these women didn't want to be where they were, that these women just were beautiful. It is truly the greatest privilege of my life to be in the position that I'm in. This modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Betwixt Podcast. I'm Deb Gregory. This episode is the first in a series that delves into the dark topic of sex trafficking. Today, we ask the question, how do we treat women who sell sex? Now, before we begin, I want to issue a parental warning here. While there's no explicit content in this episode, we will focus on mature topics that may not be suitable for young listeners, so please be sensitive to little ears as you listen. Did you know that in the United States, one-third of all women enter prostitution before age 15? and 62% were in prostitution before their 18th birthday. And most are runaways from abusive homes. Ohio ranks fourth in the nation for human trafficking. And in Franklin County, which is where I live, of the 1,200 women arrested each year for solicitation, Over 92% are identified as victims of sex trafficking. Trauma lurks behind each story. When Judge Paul Herbert recognized the link between perpetrators of sex crimes and victims of sexual abuse, he decided to do something about it. In 2009, he set up Catch Court, a specialized docket of the Franklin County Municipal Court. The Catch program seeks to provide the acceptance and structure necessary to transform the lives of prostitutes from ones of dependency to freedom. Hannah Estabrook has been working with survivors of trauma for over a decade, and she's the coordinator of Catch Court In just a moment, she's going to share with us the incredible story of healing and restoration for women caught up in sex trafficking and how that work has changed her life as well. Hannah is an educator and she's a TEDx speaker. She's also an abolitionist working to end sex trafficking. She's a licensed counselor specializing in sexual abuse and the co-author of the book Beyond Desolate, Hope versus Hate in the Rubble of Sexual Abuse. Hannah and her husband live here in Franklinton, Ohio, where she serves as a lay leader of Franklinton Abbey, a missional church community that's in her neighborhood. Hannah Estabrook, thank you for having this conversation with me. My pleasure. 
tell me a little bit about who you are and tell us a little bit about what you do. That's always a big question to start with, right? Just a little bit, right? Yeah, I know. (laughs) Just a little bit of my life. So I have the privilege of coordinating a program called Catch Court. Catch Court is a specialized docket in the Franklin County Municipal Court. Specialized dockets are sort of designed for for people who are coming through the criminal justice system and who are identified as special populations. You know, they're really committing crimes because of some unaddressed issue. So Catch Court is specifically for women coming out of the prostitution lifestyle. These are women who many of them actually do have mental health issues and or drug issues. But sort of the unique feature for them is this horrific trauma. It's complex trauma. You know, it's trauma from childhood. It's trauma from the lifestyle of prostitution. Many, many, many of them were manipulated or coerced into the lifestyle. So they would be considered, legally speaking, they would be considered victims of of trafficking. So, you know, they're both committing crimes and they're also victims of a much greater crime. We provide resources and treatment and they are on probation. They come to court every week and check in with the judge and, you know, there's a lot of expectations put on them, but it's better than throwing them in jail and having them just go through that cycle over and over. Hmm. You're kind of specialized in your counseling. You wrote this book called Beyond Desolate, Hope Versus Hate and the Rubble of Sexual Abuse. What is it about sexual abuse Mm -hmm. that draws Mm -hmm. you in? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a survivor of sexual abuse. I didn't really talk openly about my story until I was probably graduate school. The chair of our graduate counseling program, sexual abuse was really her area of expertise. And so one of the things that she invited me into was, hey, would you like to co-author a book together about healing from, from child sexual abuse? I was practicing as a counselor at the time. So I was working with survivors. There was like this pretty steady intake of just sexual trauma stuff in that, of course, there were really dark seasons. I mean, I I know for me, the chapter that was hardest to write was the chapter um, called Never Trust Again, which is really about sexual abuse when it happens in a religious context. Mm -hmm. Because I think there's such a unique trauma when sexual and religious abuse are kind of combined. I just... I mean, there aren't really words for that. And mm-hmm. so I just kind of went into a cave. I would describe it as a cave. It's it's horrific, you know? I remember being so grateful when we finally got to the healing part. Okay. <laughs> so. so is this book geared specifically for people who have sexual abuse trauma? Yeah, so I would say it's specifically for survivors of sexual abuse or anyone whose life runs up against someone who's been a survivor of sexual abuse. There's some stuff in there for significant others and family members and also counselors who find themselves, you know, treating or caring for survivors of sexual abuse. But yeah, there's a lot in there for survivors themselves. Okay. Tell me a little bit more about Catch. Like how did it start? How does it work? It started in 2009. So what had happened was, I think it was in about 2007, there was a change in our criminal justice system where previous to this change, Judges who were presiding over domestic violence cases did not have to talk to victims. They didn't have to look at pictures of the victims. And now judges were required to look at those photographs and they were presented with a lot more facts. You know, victims were permitted to make statements in the courtroom, things like that. And so Judge Paul Herbert, who started Catch Court, was in arraignment court and he had 37 domestic violence cases one day. 
after going through all of his DV cases where he had been looking at all these photographs of mostly women who were victims of domestic violence, he then had a defendant come into the room and the case was prostitution. And he looked up at her and he saw a domestic violence victim. Like, what is going on here? Before that moment, he and I think many people in the criminal justice system sort of viewed prostitution as a victimless crime. You know, you have two consenting adults exchanging sexual activity for hire, you know, and that is illegal, but it is viewed as sort of just this equal power consensual thing. But when he saw this prostitute who had some bruises and who was pretty just ragged and beat up, he was really curious. So he started reading about it. He started asking questions and and what he found was that the lifestyle of prostitution was not something that most women were choosing that this lifestyle was often coercive, often manipulative, and traumatic in and of itself. Prostitutes are much more likely to be a victim of homicide, much more likely to be a victim of rape. There's not another field that's like that. So he started Catch in the fall of 2009. And know, he was the first one in Columbus He was the first one this. in Columbus to do it. First one in Ohio to do it. Oh, wow. He sort of described it initially as like an experiment. <laughs> okay. Um, because women in this work had really bad recidivism rates. So nationally, like 80%. So 80% of the women who were coming through on prostitution charges had been there before. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, well, what's the risk? We can't do worse than that. It's been tweaked over the years, but today it's, you know, it's certified by the Supreme Court of Ohio since 2014, and it's a two-year intensive probation specialized docket, and it's very well respected, not only in the state, but in the country. It's just crazy to think, I don't know, 2009, that a judge Mm -hmm. for the first time saw women as being coerced into this. Yeah. I think I saw on your website a quote No little girl just dreams to be a prostitute. Yeah. So feminists are split on this issue. So if you hear people using the language of sex worker, um, that's sort of this one sect of feminism that says, you know, this is an empowering choice that a woman makes and we need to legalize this, regulate it and make it safe for these women. And then there's sort of this side of feminism that says all prostitution is coercive, is exploitive, objectifies women, and so abolishing it is the only option, you know. And so so the feminists are really split on this issue. What I would say personally (laughs) is that I am inclined to believe a woman's narrative about her own life. And that narrative may shift. You know, I've definitely worked with women who have, upon meeting them, said, no one forced me to do this. You know, I, I, I chose this. This was my fault. And months into treatment, she might come to me and say, oh my gosh, when my mom asked me to sit on this guy's lap when I was 11 years old in exchange for whatever, she was grooming me for this. So they start to make these connections where they realize like, oh man, I really, I was manipulated into this lifestyle. So it's powerful to see those connections be made. But when I meet her and she says, oh, I chose this. If I say, no, you didn't, 
then how dishonoring is that to her own story? So I tend to not take one of these two sides and choose a camp. Um, my camp is whoever, whichever woman I'm working with, I'm all in for her story. And if her narrative shifts, cool. <laughs> if she chose this and just wants to do something different because she's tired of it, great. I don't need her to be some kind of victim to be able to access resources to get out of this lifestyle. If she wants to do something different, she should definitely be empowered to, to have those options. That's the beauty of being in the middle, getting away from the polarizing views and coming right into the middle and working for the transformation of those yeah. who want it. That's right. That's exactly right. Statistics, I think, are of not much of value unless they're connected to the story. But just to give us like some perspective in terms of how many women in Franklin County per year are arrested for solicitation, what is the background of most of the women that you see? That's great. So if you look at the data for the last, you know, we'll say the last nine years, since that's how long we've been doing catch court, there's anywhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred solicitation cases coming through the Franklin County Municipal Court every year. Now, that probably is not representative of 1,500 women. Um, certainly, some of those are going to be repeat offenders, but still, that's a high number of women. That's more than go to my church. <laughs> Well, that's right? striking. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, it's a big number. You know, solicitation is a misdemeanor in the first degree. So you can get up to six months in jail for that or um, up to a $1,000 fine. So I would say that most women, when they get their first solicitation charge, it's, a, it's usually a short jail sentence or um, they may try like a probation program. But again, because nationally the recidivism rate is about 80% for this population, Judges don't even tend to put these ladies on probation because they're not good probationers. They don't show up to see their probation officer. They don't come to court. When you're in that lifestyle, it's it's all consuming. So long and short of it is eventually they're going to be facing like a significant amount of amount of jail time. So usually that's the point when a woman is willing to consider something different, right? And that's usually when we meet her. Catch court is voluntary, so we can't force anyone to do catch court. It can be highly encouraged and highly incentivized for women who are looking at six months in jail or catch court, <laughs> but they make that choice. So we're keeping two-year recidivism rates based on our data for women who have been in catch court for any length of time. So we're talking maybe they got into treatment and they ran that same day and we never saw them again. That doesn't happen very often. For that person or someone who stayed with the program for four months or 12 months or, or the full two years, our recidivism rates are just 29%, which is a significant decrease from 80%. So, I mean, I just think in terms of saving tax dollars, decreasing recidivism, I mean, just those numbers alone, I think, show its value. Mm -hmm. But you also can't put a price on some of the stories. We have a woman who graduated the program. She was in the second year, so she graduated in 2012. And she has been working at the courthouse in different positions for a number of years. And it, we just found out last week that she's going to be Judge Herbert's bailiff. Wow. 
his his bailiff is retiring and and he is hiring a, a catch court graduate that has proved herself in the court system. You know, she's been working there for years. You know, you can't put a price tag on that. I mean, that talk about restorative justice. You know, she's going to be in that courtroom with those catch women every single week, giving her experience, strength and hope. And I can't wait. I'm so excited. That's amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. And there are lots of stories like that. Yeah. Well, this, this just brings me back to, I don't know this world very well, and we live on one side of the tracks, literally. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the tracks, we had an encounter a couple years ago where my husband forgot to lock the car door. The same day, he left his phone in the car, mm-hmm. and it got stolen. And then the guy who stole it called us from his landline <laughs> so we could track who he was and where he was. And then he made a call from my husband's phone to someone else. And so we tracked that call, and my husband pulled up to see if she had a criminal record. Mm-hmm. And she had over 70 counts of solicitation. We even drove over there. We're mm. like, okay, so this is this guy's house, literally across the tracks, and then two blocks down was this, this woman's house. And when I drove by, I saw her and a little girl. Mm. As you're talking, you know, I've never really put all the pieces together for her. Um, Yeah, like these are people who live around us. Yes. At least I feel very blind to what's happening just in my my own neighborhood. To the reality of holding the tension between two pieces, victim and defendant. Yes. That's what I'm so fascinated about with this court. So how does that all work out? And <laughs> <laughs> what are you learning? Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, that that is the essence of yeah, our program because to me, trauma-informed justice, being trauma-informed as a judge is looking at that defendant and seeing the case file. That is the tip of the iceberg, this solicitation case and everything underneath is all the things that have happened to this person to get them to the point where they're standing in front of you in your courtroom. And if you have a judge who's willing to see that, to go, not just why did you do this thing, right? But instead to have a posture of, man, how did you get here, right? Mm. Like it just feels differently. So two very different questions. Yeah. And so that that's sort of the essence of it. And truly, the thing you can't capture in a podcast, right, is that to be in the courtroom and to watch these women in handcuffs, you know, in their jail scrubs, and they come out and they stand before Judge, and Judge Herbert has a quality about him where he is, I mean, he is over the moon for these women, you know, I mean, he just gives them the biggest smile, the biggest welcome. Oh my gosh, I've heard so much about you. I'm so excited to see you. I hear you're considering catch court. What questions can we answer? How can we help you make that decision? So engaging, tells each of them how special they are, how how much a part of the family they are. And, you know, he always says like, we're gonna have a, a seat with your name on it. We're gonna welcome you with open arms and and he does it. Over the course of a two-year program, we get to know them, you know, and so judge will ask, how's your son doing this week? I heard you, you got to go visit your mom this weekend. How was that visit? You know, he asks those questions, the things that they care about, he cares about. 
it's hard to describe, but to a woman who's been coming through this system, this broken system for potentially years, and has stood in front of judges and listened to the snickers from attorneys and courts people and other defendants just calling her all kinds of horrific names and basically throwing stones at her, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's her life. And now she's in the middle of a courtroom and a judge is telling her how special she is. It's, it's amazing to watch because these women kind of are like, wait, what? Like they don't, they don't even have a paradigm for that. And so it's like a window of hope. It is. And I watch it. I watch their faces because I sit right next to the judge. And so when a woman is facing the judge, taking her plea into our program, I get to see her face. And I love that because I watch her face just shift. I'll tell you what, when she hears that from the judge, <laughs> it changes everything. We just had a woman a couple weeks ago who said, the thing that made me make this decision was coming into this courtroom and seeing how kind Judge Herbert was. And that was the moment I decided I was going to give this a chance. <laughs> just kindness. Kindness. <laughs> These women wow. just do not receive that treatment in, in other circles of their lives. And so it's a privilege to watch a woman blossom in the presence of kindness. Wow. just feels like catch court is a garden, hmm. right? Yeah. It's a long yes. cultivation process, two years. Yes. Yeah. Tell Beautiful. me about the community that happens in this space where it's set apart from the rest of the world. It's kind of reserved. It's somewhere between freedom and incarceration. They themselves are between victim and defendant. This two-year probationary period. What happens through the community that's formed there, and how does that come to fruition? Not all of them had healthy families. Most of them probably didn't, actually. And so their concept of family and their concept of loyalty and their concept of community, which run deep in all of us, but for them, it's very connected to the streets. It's very connected to the specific lifestyle. But I say that because it's not that they don't know how community works. Even though it hasn't been modeled well, they want to show up and be a part of a family. They want to be a very necessary part of a community, and they are. It is quite literally my favorite thing about the program is watching them care for each other. You'll have a woman who says in court, guys, I'm really struggling with this or that. And I mean, to watch a room full of women, they'll just go to bat for her. They'll start sending around a paper with all their phone numbers. Call me, call me, call me, you know, or they'll start calling her or they'll say, hey, I'm going to this meeting tonight. Why don't you come with me? Just very recently, we had a woman who had a pretty negative experience at a doctor's office, which is not rare. She has a history of drug addiction. She's been on the streets. And so this doctor was unnecessarily looking like at her arms where she's got track marks from using, you know, shooting up and stuff. And she just thought, you don't need to see these right now. Like it had nothing to do with that, right? That's not why she was there. And so she had a very negative experience. And as she starts talking about this experience and she begins to cry and she's just feeling very isolated and sort of unsupported in this process. And I'll tell you what, it was like an army of women who were like, 
okay, we're going to go to your doctor's appointment with you. I mean, there were women who were like, who, who's the doctor? We're going to egg his house. <laughs> Which is like, please don't do that. We don't want you getting more criminal charges, right? Um, but also I love the part of you that is just rallying for your sister right now. But that's the kind of thing that happens that is just irreplaceable. And and truly, almost every time a woman comes out to take a plea into the program, the number one phrase I hear from the women who are currently in the program is, we're going to love you until you can love yourself. Because they know, they remember what it was like to stand there at the beginning of that journey on the threshold of this big shift, feeling very afraid, feeling inadequate, feeling like there's no way I can do all this hard work. And am I even worth it? Right? Like, can I even have a better life? And so those women are very quick to say, we, we got you. We are going to love you until you can love yourself. And, And they do it. And it's a, it's an incredible thing. There's a woman, a clergy friend who comes to court pretty regularly, and she has a a congregation in the suburbs, you know, sort of folks that, you know, have a lot of privilege. And she loves bringing people from her her faith community to witness catch court because she's like, this is how church should be, right? Like just, (laughs) hey, I'm struggling with this. And then 10 people who are like, hey, we're going to love you. We're going to figure this out. Yes, that is how church should be. It's, it's beautiful. Hmm. In that space where they, you know, they've crossed this threshold and now they've got two years. Mm -hmm. What are the kinds of things that they have to let go of that they have to die to Mm. (laughs) get released from? And what kinds of things do they have to take up? Yeah, that's great. So that they can leave that space completely different and strong. Yeah. It's probably worth saying here that Catch stands for changing actions to change habits. That name, which Judge Herbert came up with himself, he's very proud of it, comes from a passage in Ephesians 4 that talks about putting off your old self. And there's a renewing of the mind and spirit that happen. And then you put on the new self. It's not a religious or a faith-based program, but that concept, honestly, that's basic cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, I'm going to identify the lies that I'm believing, speak truth to them, and sort of embrace what is true and what is good. So the women, the ones who I've seen be very successful, seem to understand this concept deeply. Oh, I have to change everything. Mm. And you know, we don't, we don't give them a list of here are all the things you have to change. They kind of just do that work. They start to realize like, oh, I haven't been using or anything, but I I find that when I listen to this kind of music, I start to really think about using drugs a lot, you know, or I find that when I dress this certain way, or when I walk this certain way, that I feel like I'm right back out there on the streets. And part of that is like an adrenaline rush, and I like it. And part of it makes me feel really shamed and, and kind of gross. So you've got women who are changing their their clothing and their music and their way they talk and certainly changing their their relationships. They're learning how to have boundaries. They're learning how to speak up for themselves. One of the things on probation with us is that we utilize stayaways. So stayaways are typically parts of town, probably the area maybe you were referring to, for example. So parts of town and and very often people 
But we also loosen up on that as you go throughout the program. It's kind of like parenting. You know, it's like right now I'm going to tell you you can't have a conversation with this guy. But a year from now, I'm not going to tell you that anymore. It's going to be up to you to navigate how you engage in conversation with him. It's a beautiful thing when you watch a woman go, you know what? I don't think I need to talk to him anymore. (laughs) Great. Yeah, so there are a lot of changes. But I think there's also this embrace of hope, this embrace of worth. It kind of goes back to that thing that happens with the judge where two seconds ago, I didn't think I had any value, but I'm looking at this judge and his big smile and hearing his words. And now I'm starting to wonder if a judge thinks I'm pretty cool, like maybe I'm kind of cool. And there's this sense of I'm going to put off the way I see myself and I'm going to pick up how you see me for a little while. And eventually it starts to get transformed. And now I actually just think I'm kind of awesome. And that's, that to me is so beautiful to watch. That's so great. You have told me before that some of the women will even engage in a communal discernment process. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? (laughs) Like how did that happen and what does that look like in this space? So in my personal life, I have found some of the Quaker practices of submitting to your community in a discernment process to be very, very helpful. I'm kind of at the point in my life where I don't really desire to make a big life decision without my community. So it really started to occur to me that in a program like this, we are effectively making a lot of the decisions for the participants in the beginning. And so the temptation is that we will just continue to do that for two years. And then you're just off probation and you have to figure it out. Well, that doesn't sound like we're setting them up for success, right? So my preference was, can we figure out a way to just teach them some skills that they can take beyond these two years to learn how to make those big decisions, right? So I started talking to them about the practice of submitting to a discerning community and So it's affectionately referred to in our program as the Quaker circle. (laughs) So if a woman is saying something like, hey, I think I'm ready to start working. One of the questions might be, have you had a Quaker circle? (laughs) Or have you talked to your Quaker circle? (laughs) Um, We had a, a woman who graduated the program last year. And before she graduated, we had held two specific clearness committees for her. One where she was discerning about moving. And then one where she was discerning about a relationship that she was in. And so in both those conversations, we asked her, select the people that you want to be present. And I will help facilitate this conversation where for an hour and a half or so, people just ask you questions. We're not going to tell you what to do. The decision is truly up to you, but we want you to really contend with the different things going on inside of you. And so we did that a couple times with her and she came back to visit court a couple months ago. She was like, man, that Quaker circle, that was so helpful. She's like, all of you guys, if you haven't done it, you need to do that. And so, yeah, we've, we don't do it perfectly because we're a court. So we still like to just tell you what to do (laughs) because sometimes we just know better. Um, right. But, but as much as we can, we really value the development of this skill. 
And what happens when they graduate? One of the things that's so beautiful, and this is where our governor's office has been really supportive of this program, and so the graduation for Catch Court has historically been held at the governor's residence. The Ohio governor. Yes. (laughs) Wow, okay. (laughs) So First Lady Karen Kasich has presented, and she gives the certificates. She's a very just lovely, supportive woman and host of this graduation experience. It's really beautiful. It's a really big day. You know, many of them did not graduate high school, so they never walked down an aisle with pomp and circumstance. So, damn it, they're going to do it now. (laughs) You know, like they (laughs) should have that moment, you know, and get a handshake from a judge and the First Lady of Ohio. It's just a beautiful day. But beyond that, probation is terminated. So there's this sort of like, you're free now, you know. But one of the things that happens then is that those charges that they pled guilty to to enter into catch court, those charges can be dismissed and sealed. Statewide, women who are survivors of human trafficking can apply for expungement of prostitution-related charges. What does expunged mean? So the difference between sealing and expungement basically is who can see your record. So if it's expunged, it's like it never happened. Literally, it's not there. Not there. Like the file is literally shredded and there's no evidence that it that was a case. Sealing basically means that if you apply for a job um, or if you go to get housing, you know, those are, and those of course are the two biggest things where women are concerned or anyone would be concerned about their record. Folks aren't going to be able to have access to that information, but there's still a case file and it might be sealed, but it's there. So the FBI can see it and the, yeah. That kind of thing. All right. So that was a long answer just to say that women certainly, at least in Franklin County, have the ability to pursue expungement and completing catch court is only going to help you in that process of getting your cases expunged. Can you talk about the intersection between victim and human trafficking? Like how do you as a court navigate that? Yeah. So from a legal perspective, if I was a victim of human trafficking and I wanted to prosecute my trafficker the thing that has to be proven in a court of law is force, fraud, or coercion. Force is pretty intuitive, right? Someone puts a gun to my head and tells me I have to do this thing, right? Fraud is sort of this idea of a false promise. So in trafficking situations, some common fraud examples would be things like what's called boyfriending. So I'm acting as your boyfriend. And actually, a lot of the women will just say like, oh, he's my boyfriend. But then he asked me to have sex with one of his friends like one time, but then, of course, it became more. <laughs> um, and so that can be a false promise. Another another one is like, oh, work at my dance club. You know, all you have to do is dance. But then pretty quickly after you're employed, you realize you're expected to do more than just dance. There was a big case in Central Ohio a few years ago where some Chinese women were working in a massage parlor. And what became clear is that those women who had been promised that if they came to the States – they would get an education and have job and housing and all that kind of stuff. And it turns out they were being housed in these massage parlors where they were expected to also give sexual favors. So those are some examples of like, again, false promises or fraud. And then coercion is obviously just a threat of harm. So I know where your kids live. I know where your parents live. I know whatever the threat is. And so you have to sort of be able to prove those things. From a prosecution standpoint, if you're going after your trafficker, from a victim standpoint, I'm I'm obviously less concerned that you can prove it to me, but just in general, if you can sort of show that there was some manipulation and, and 
some kind of coercion involved in your entrance into an involvement in, in the prostitution lifestyle, then you'll be considered a victim. And, and I'll say this too, Ohio didn't even have a law about human trafficking until 2012. So, so there wasn't a crime. Hmm. Like the first prosecuted human trafficking case was the Nelms case in 2014 and attorney general Mike DeWine prosecuted that case. It was determined that using a woman's drug addiction was an example of compulsion, was an example of manipulation, and was considered sex trafficking. That's powerful because a lot of people think, oh, those women are out there feeding their habit. So they just put that woman in this category. Drug addict, prostitute, crack whore, right? Like that's the label we put on them. If you walk a few steps back, you'll find most likely somebody who either got her started on that drug or who is exploiting her drug use by saying, I need you to go out there and make this much money and is completely overcharging her because all that money is coming back to him or her, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stigma associated with the women who are coming out of this world. Yes. And I guess the way I'm thinking about it is it's not just a change that needs to happen for them Mm -hmm. in order to make the world better. It's a change that has to happen to us as well. Society needs to do a better job of understanding and supporting and walking with. I love that. I mean, that, that is restorative justice. The whole idea of retributive or traditional justice is... Well, you did the crime, so you pay the time. You know, you need to be punished. But restorative justice says, how do we help you as a community re-enter the community in a healthy way? But that requires community to be involved, which you're right, means we have to understand a little bit more about where they're coming from and what their backgrounds are and, and develop more empathy and compassion because judging them has gotten us nowhere. So what it, what's this process been for you? I mean, mm. this has been, you know, my favorite word, the liminal space, mm-hmm. catch court for these women who themselves are liminal mm-hmm. in this season. But you can kind of come and go. Mm-hmm. What is it like for you? How does that change you? Oh, boy. I worry about overstating it, but I don't know if I can. So it is truly like the greatest privilege of my life to be in the position that I'm in. I remember being a senior in college and having to go in this class and everyone had to go around the room and share where they wanted to be in 10 years and listening to my classmates like, I want to be married and have kids and, you know, whatever. And I just said, I just want to work with prostitutes. (laughs) (laughs) And it was this super awkward moment and my professor was blushing really bad and it was, it was painful. Looking back, I'm like, why did I say that? I don't know if it's just like from God or what, but I just felt that these women had stories, that these women didn't want to be where they were, that these women just were beautiful. I am so grateful for the path and grateful to be where I am. These women have taught me a lot, a lot about resilience, courage, and bravery. The courage to believe I have value when I don't feel like I have value. 
over and over and over again when I'm sitting with these women, I think, how are you still here? How are you still going? How are you alive? How do you move throughout this crazy world we live in? How do you feel about being in a body? They amaze me that they've been able to endure what they've endured and still they keep going and keep fighting. And so it is truly the greatest privilege to know them, to get to serve them and love them in, in whatever way that I can. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I'm forever changed because of them. <laughs> When I think about the healing that occurs through the CATCH program, I get really excited. Transformation requires that crossing of a threshold, the, the release of the old self and the taking on of a new self. And this is what I see happening for so many of the CATCH women. So if CATCH court is a garden, then Hannah Estabrook is a master gardener, working toward the flourishing of women who for too long have been entangled by the weeds and thorns of life. So this episode, it, it left me asking a lot of questions like, how do I do church? Am I willing to love others until they can love themselves like the catch women do? Am I willing to live life so vulnerably, yet with dependence upon a healthy community? I also feel deeply moved by the way Judge Herbert sees the catch women through the eyes of kindness and how we watch them blossom within that gaze. This to me is the powerful demonstration of the kindness God extends to his beloved, a kindness that leads us to repentance and to life. Now it's easy for me to feel compassion toward women who've experienced trauma and sexual exploitation, but what about men who solicit? How do we treat Johns who buy sex? Well, stay tuned for the next episode, which will focus on the flip side of sex trafficking, men who buy sex. My guest will be Chris Stoller, who is a John School presenter and the demand reduction coordinator for She Has a Name. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Betwixt Podcast. You can find more Betwixt episodes and view our show notes at betwixtpodcast.com or you can visit my partners at missioalliance.org. Missio Alliance is resourcing a church reimagined for a world recreated. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and given Betwixt a positive review on iTunes or Google Play. If you haven't done that yet, please consider taking a minute to help me out. This really is the fuel of podcast, and it makes a big difference. Special thanks to my friends Rivoli for sharing the music that you hear now. You can check them out at ryvoli.com or Facebook slash Rivoli. Hey, it has been a real pleasure to produce this podcast for you. Thank you for holding liminal space with me today. Catch you next time. <laughs>